Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. MDMA, commonly known as Ecstasy or Molly or Mandy, is the world's most popular party drug. The driving intoxicant behind raves, house parties, all-night festivals, and the throbbing trance-like beat of electronic dance music. At the same time, it's recently been lauded in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled Phase 3 study as our best potential remedy for PTSD and other difficult-to-treat mental health conditions when combined with talk therapy. But even as one of the most sought-after still illegal drugs on the planet, the story of MDMA is little known compared to the mythic cultural histories of psychotropic drugs like LSD, marijuana, peyote, and cocaine. So how has how long has MDMA been around? Where does it come from? Why is it illegal? And why do some very serious people believe it may just be our last best hope? to save the planet. My guest today is Rachel Neuer. She's an award-winning science journalist who regularly contributes to the New York Times, National Geo, and Scientific American. Her previous book, entitled Poached, exposed the worldwide crisis in wildlife trafficking. Today we're talking about her latest, I Feel Love, MDMA, and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Rachel Neuer, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. So, for those listeners who may have never attended a rave or taken ecstasy or heard about all the renewed interest in MDMA for therapy, tell us what it feels like to take it and sort of <laughs> how it differs from other drugs that we may be familiar with. Oh, you're starting with the real hard questions there. Um, well, for those who have taken a consciousness-altering substance, you'll know that it is pretty difficult to put into words what that actually subjectively feels like. So that's a caveat. My other caveat is that I have never taken MDMA in a therapeutic context and taking it recreationally or therapeutically are two very different feelings. I'm told, you know, people who do it on a therapist's couch say, I don't know why this drug is called ecstasy. This is not an ecstatic experience. This is really hard work. Um, that said, when uh, you do take it in a recreational context, whether that's at home with a partner for a quiet evening, uh, just chatting or, you know, at a pumping rave, um, there are certain subjective feelings that most people experience, such as sort of rolling waves of euphoria, of happiness, a subjective feeling of connectivity with the self, with others around you, you know, again, whether that's your partner or, you know, a thousand people on a dance floor, I, I can say it's just a very pleasant feeling. And one of the things that I personally appreciate about this drug is that unlike alcohol, I never feel like I'm spinning out of control. I always feel like, you know, I can stop and have a conversation with someone if I need to. Well, sign me up, first of all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the most well-known therapeutic use for MDMA is, is for PTSD, um, which of course, as your book tells us, so many people suffer from in many forms. What other conditions can it potentially be used to treat? So therapists have suspected literally for decades um, since this drug began 
being used therapeutically in the 1970s, that MDMA can really catalyze any type of psychotherapy virtually, whether that is for couples counseling, for trauma, or just for, you know, getting to know yourself and, you know, working out whatever problems you're having in your life at the moment. As far as the scientific evidence, however, um, like you said, PTSD is the furthest along in terms of trials. There's also been a small trial conducted in the UK on MDMA-assisted therapy for alcohol use disorder with some really positive results, um, especially compared to the other current best treatments available for alcoholism. There's also a trial that's been completed on social anxiety in autistic adults that, again, really promising results. You know, these were people who had crippling social anxiety and then came out of the trial able to do things like, um, for example, one participant got married, another completed college, another actually engaged in public speaking. So that was pretty stupendous. Um, others are beginning to investigate MDMA-assisted therapy for things like eating disorders, obesity, and um, OCD. MDMA was actually first synthesized by the Merck Pharmaceutical Company over a hundred years ago. And then it was largely forgotten until it was resynthesized by a psychedelic chemist in Berkeley named Alexander Shulgin. Now, he was a fascinating character. Tell us about Shulgin's interest in MDMA and how he introduced it to therapists. Uh, yeah, Shulgin is such a fascinating character. And very sadly, he passed away a few years ago, so I didn't get to interview him firsthand, but he left so many writings and, you know, his friends are still around. So I really felt like I got to know him, even though I didn't get to you know, physically get to know him. Um, Shulgin is uh, known for creating more than 200 psychoactive compounds. So he would start with a basic structure like mescaline and then just add um, you know, a group here, a side chain there, and take it himself at home and see what would happen, you know, starting in very small amounts and working up. And then if he thought he had something interesting, he had this group of friends that he would invite over and uh, they would all sit together um, with Shulgin and his wife and they'd all take whatever new drug and take notes about how it felt. Uh, just really interesting time in the Bay Area's history. Shulgin resynthesized MDMA in um, 1968, then again in 1975, and he finally took it himself in 1976. And at first he compared it to what he said was a low-calorie martini. It was something that could make him feel a little bit more open, chatty, um, you know, plug right into that sort of tipsy feeling you get on that first drink. But the more he tried it, the more uh, a specific word began to pop into his head. And that word was window. He felt like MDMA was really opening him up, like like the opening of a window where he could talk about things that he normally felt reserved about, where he could communicate without having any sort of mental blockers that I think many of us have in place, whether that's because of um, self-consciousness or fear of being judged or judgment we have towards others. So Shulgin is actually the reason that MDMA found its way to the therapeutic community, because in recognizing that window-like property, he decided to introduce it to a good friend of his who was a therapist. Um, and this this therapist named Leo Zeff wound up 
uh, literally coming out of retirement because he thought MDMA had such promise for therapy. And he spent uh, the next decade or so spreading MDMA around to other therapists and teaching them how to use it as a therapeutic catalyst. So how did MDMA find its ways from the quiet offices of California therapists to the dance floors of Dallas and even to England, where your book is fascinating on this subject. You tell us it actually had a role in transforming youth culture, breaking down social class barriers and even making crazy soccer fans less violent. How did it get to the clubs? Great question. So, um, as I said earlier, MDMA is a drug that um, makes you feel good unless you're doing really hard work therapeutically with it. It feels really nice to be on MDMA. And a drug that make you, makes you feel nice is inevitably going to find application in a recreational setting. Now, therapists knew that if news about this new drug got out into the recreational world um, and it started to gain popularity, the DEA here in the U.S. would inevitably crack down on it, just like they had done to LSD before. You know, LSD was also a therapeutic agent before it found recreational utility. And they they just saw the writing on the wall, like this is going to happen. If MDMA becomes recreational, it's going to be made illegal and nobody's going to be able to study it or use it for therapy. Um, and that's precisely what happened. You know, people realized that they could make a buck off of selling MDMA and promoting it in clubs, first starting in New York and San Francisco. And then um, there was a really, really hot center of activity in Dallas, Texas, at, um, this new club called the Start Club. And MDMA really popped off there. Um, then not surprisingly, the DEA took notice and cracked down in 1985. They moved MDMA onto Schedule 1, which is the strictly banned uh, list of drugs like heroin and LSD that are defined as having no current medical value and also a high potential for abuse. Um, and just an interesting side note there, a group of therapists and doctors, including professors from Harvard, got together and tried to fight the DEA on that decision and argue that MDMA should be a Schedule Three drug, which would permit them to continue with research and continue with therapy, but still control it. Um, and they actually won their case against the DEA. But because um, this was in an administrative law court, the decision or the judgment was not binding. And the DEA was like, whatever, we're just going to move forward and schedule it on Schedule One like we wanted to all the time. So because of the crackdown here in the U.S., um, MDMA became harder to find, but it did jump across the pond, as you mentioned, to the U.K. Um, around 1988-1989, um, some British DJs, Paul Oakenfold among them, brought MDMA back from uh, the Spanish island Ibiza, where they had discovered it on the dance floor there. And they wanted to recreate these glory nights they had had in Ibiza uh, back in you know, dreary England. And they began throwing these incredible new parties, uh, t parties that the UK had never seen with house music and with MDMA really, uh, you know, fueling the dance floor instead of alcohol. So, you know, instead of agro people, you know, prone to fight as people become an alcohol, it was people hugging and saying, I love you. And uh, just this great connection. Um, MDMA created raves because at that time in the UK clubs were closing around one or two in the morning, which is kind of right when people are getting going on MDMA and they wanted to keep the party going. So 
raves were this, these illegal parties that would pop up all over the place, like under an, uh, an, an overpass in an abandoned airport hangar. Um, and as you mentioned, it did seem to shift British sensibilities a bit. So for the first time, for example, men were seen hugging in public. Uh, people from different socioeconomic stratospheres came together on the dance floor to party. Um, there was less judgment. And there is some evidence that MDMA played a role in the lessening of football-related violence there. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the world's most popular party drug, which also happens to be our best hope as a cure for PTSD and other hard-to-treat mental health conditions. My guest is award-winning science journalist Rachel Neuer, and we're talking about her new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Rachel, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, a nonprofit uh, research organization that's been working for decades to get MDMA approved by the government. And along the way, and this is very impressive, it's enabled therapy for thousands of people. So what's the story of MAPS? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that the DEA scheduled MDMA in 1985 and that there was this group of therapists and scientists and doctors that came together and fought the DEA on that. Uh, one of the organizers of that case against the DEA was a man named Rick Doblin. He was a young guy at the time, um, very idealistic. He was brought up um, in the suburbs outside of Chicago, and his family would talk about the Holocaust around the dinner table. So Rick uh, describes himself as someone who, even as a child, had this haunting fear that at any moment the people around him could break out into genocidal mania. So he spent his life searching for a means to prevent that, to um, to turn down that negative and uh, horrendous side of humanity and, you know, turn up features of being human, such as connectivity, love, acceptance, um, the fact that, you know, we all have more in common than we have differences. In MDMA, Rick found an answer to uh, that problem that he'd been seeking. He thought, okay, here is a medicine I can use to bring people together and also to heal the wounds of trauma that have been inflicted by things like the Holocaust and other atrocities that humans commit against each other. So when the DEA scheduled MDMA and um, all but you know forbid its use in medicine and also in research, pretty much everyone gave up and thought, okay, that's it. MDMA is off the table. Like if we want to keep working with it, it's going to have to be illegal. And a lot of people didn't want to do that, of course. Uh, but the one person who did not give up was Rick Doblin. Uh, Rick Doblin was like, no, I, you know, I don't accept this. I'm going to figure out a way to bring MDMA back into the light of scientific and medical respectability. And to do that, he founded this organization, MAPS, to spearhead those efforts. And um, just slowly over the years, you know, it's been nearly 38 years now um, through, I would say, the sheer force of his will and tenacity and dedication to this cause. He's seen MDMA through of the um, through these phase three trials to the point that we will probably see it approved by the FDA to treat PTSD in conjunction with therapy by this time next year. And, you know, MAPS has grown to a large organization, at least a couple hundred members. So there's been, of course, a lot of people who have helped along the way. 
But I really do think that Rick Doblin deserves um, the bulk of the credit for getting us to this point. <laughs> so maps, I, I should say that in your book, there are so many fascinating characters. And maps is partially funded by a number of American billionaires, one of whom is Elizabeth Koch from the infamous Koch brothers family. You visited her. What is her story? Why in the world is she dedicated to using MDMA? Yeah, that's it's a great point. Um, the reason I think that MAPS has been so successful is that MDMA sort of strikes this bipartisan chord um, because it's treating PTSD and thus it's helping veterans. So a lot of MAPS's donors over the years have been people from the right wing, um, including, well, I will say Elizabeth is, does not identify as political either way, but when I met her, she struck me as a very liberal individual. Um, Elizabeth came to this not from the veterans angle, but because she's a person who has suffered her whole life herself. Um, she had some underlying trauma from childhood that she told me about, um, basically as a result of um, her dad, one of the Koch brothers, you know, sitting her down when she was very young and sternly reprimanding her and telling her, you know, you need to be the best person in the room at all times. You need to be the hardest worker. You need to be the one who's, you know, the last to leave cleaning up other people's trash and make yourself as likable as possible because otherwise Everyone you meet is going to be jealous of you and is going to hate you because of what you have. And that's a really important message. But for a five-year-old, you know, it really kind of messed Elizabeth up. And, you know, she spent the rest, uh, you know, decades just feeling like she wasn't enough and always just no matter what she achieved, it wasn't going to be good enough. Um, and just always going over in her mind, like, what have I done wrong today? How could I have been better? And by the time she reached her, I guess, late 20s, early 30s, this was becoming a real problem for her, um, this early childhood trauma that she'd been carrying for all these years. And that's how she found psychedelic assisted therapy. And she did her own MDMA assisted therapy to deal with that. And, you know, she describes the experience of, of life as life changing. She was able to feel love for herself, to understand that, you know, her dad was coming from a place of love himself and trying to protect her and really let go of all those feelings and habits she would built up over the years. Um, and, you know, she wants to pay that gift forward. So she's become a major, major donor of MAPS and the work they're doing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about ecstasy, the party drug, which is also a potential game changer in the treatment of PTSD, alcoholism, social anxiety, eating disorders, obesity, and traumatic brain injury. My guest is award-winning science journalist Rachel Neuer, and we're talking about her new book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. So, Rachel, MDMA and other psychedelic drugs operate by what you call critical periods, windows of time when the brain is far more susceptible and open to learning from the environment. How does this window enable a person to heal? Does it, does it enable us to revisit a traumatic incident, for instance, and see it from another perspective? What's going on? Yeah, that's that's a really good description of it. Um, so just to add a little bit to that, critical periods are um, just terms neuroscientists have for what I think 
many of us intuitively recognize about the brain and learning and time, which is that, you know, when we're kids, we're much more open and receptive to learning new things. Think about the ease at which a child can learn a new language compared to, you know, adult language learning. Um, for me, at least, it's very difficult. Um, so critical periods uh, are, are basically they exist to set us up for a lifetime of success, to learn new habits and skills that will just pave the way for us to operate easily as adults and navigate our own particular environment. And they close. Uh, they close for a good reason. You know, if we went through life with the impressionability and the, um, I don't know, in a way, naivete and openness of a child, that would not be, uh, it, it just wouldn't be efficient. And it would also leave us uh, vulnerable to uh, bad things happening to us. You know, think about how how easily a child can be taken advantage of. So under certain circumstances, what MDMA seems to do and those certain circumstances are therapy. So going into a situation where you are mentally primed to engage with your trauma or your social anxiety or your alcoholism or whatever it is you're trying to deal with. Um, so you go into a therapist office ready to deal with that. And then you also have a therapist there to guide you through that experience. Um, under those specific circumstances, MDMA seems to reopen a critical period for social reward learning, which is just the natural reward that we all get from being social. We're a very social species. And it does allow you to go into your trauma and reevaluate the memories around that incident or those incidents to reevaluate the narrative you told yourself about who you are as a result of those experiences and also the habits you've formed around that trauma, um, you know, whether it's the nightmares, the struggle response, the distrust of others. So that is why scientists think that MDMA is such a powerful therapeutic tool, despite being something that people take, you know, once, twice, three times, you know, space months apart. You know, it's not a drug that you have to take every single day like an antidepressant. Yet we're seeing profound and potentially lifelong uh, healing that comes out of it. So scientists think the critical periods are key, are key to that because we're literally rewiring our brains. I'm confused about the legal status of MDMA. Mm. With the approval of the FDA in 2017, MDMA has been cleared for use in assisting with psychotherapy. But then I also read that MAPS is planning to seek FDA approval in the third quarter of this coming year. So could you clarify where exactly are we at? Yes. Okay. So what um, what happened in 2017 wasn't approval. It was um, the FDA declaring MDMA a breakthrough therapy which is actually a status they give to um, really uh, uh, positive results they've seen in an investigational drug. So in 2017, MDMA was declared a breakthrough therapy, which can sound really confusing, but it wasn't legalized. That just basically fast-tracked this new experimental drug um, for clinical trials. So it kind of cut through some of the red tape and the bureaucracy that would normally delay clinical trials and help things move along quickly. So MDMA right now in the U.S. and in fact, in pretty much every country around the world except Australia is an illegal drug. You cannot go to a therapist and get MDMA assisted therapy right now unless you are a participant in a clinical trial. 
Um, the hope is, though, um, now that the first phase three trial of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD has been done, um, also the second one is completed and undergoing scientific review now. Given that timeline, the hope is that by this time next year, MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD will be approved by the FDA. And once that's done, in fact, doctors here in the U.S. can start prescribing it um, off-label, which is done with a lot of medications, which basically means that even though the FDA has only approved it for PTSD, if a doctor decides that a patient could benefit with this therapy, for example, for social anxiety, he or she can do that to um, uh, completely legally. But yeah, for now, if you want MDMA-assisted therapy, you're going to have to find it underground, which brings a whole host of other complications and potential problems and dangers. Um, I will say, too, the one exception, again, is Australia. As of July 1st this year, MDMA for PTSD is a legal medicine there. So let's talk about that that street-level MDMA. You write that the purity and dosage of MDMA bought on the street is really all over the map, and that even in New York City, it's often called a mystery powder. Um, Mm -hmm. As MDMA becomes ever more popular, because of course it's a drug that in its pure form provides us with a feeling of connection, which what do we need more in today's world? What do you think is the answer? Would you like to see the legalization the way many states have legalized marijuana? I mean, I, I, I must say that in reading your book, I was I got to be so, I mean, MDMA is one of the drugs that I missed. Uh, I, mm. I didn't miss many, but I missed that one. And um, I, I'm terrified to buy it on the street, given, given all that, whatever you could find, fentanyl and stuff in everything. So what would you like to see the model be for legalization? Yeah, I this whole issue of the dangers that stem from prohibition was really news to me. Um, I, I don't know. I just had never considered how the fact that drugs are illegal actually make them more dangerous and lead to harms and deaths. So almost all of the deaths we see attributed to MDMA use are a factor of prohibition. As you raised, you buy drugs off the street, you don't know what are in those drugs, and it turns out to be something more toxic than MDMA, and you overdose that way. Or conversely, you buy something and it turns out to be pure MDMA, and you accidentally take too much because you don't know the concentration of the pill or the powder that you've bought. And you die that way. I talked to a mother who very tragically lost her daughter because she took like four or five times the safe dose of MDMA on accident. I really think that if we had regulated drug trade, that would solve so many of these problems because people could go to a pharmacist or um, to a, a drug outlet, as we've seen with marijuana in certain places, and know that what they're buying is, first of all, pure, that it meets um, standards for human consumption, and secondly, the concentration of it. So they can read on the back of the box or talk to the person selling it about, you know, this is my weight, this is what I'm planning to do, this is how much I should take to be safe. Um, and we could also that way have open information about safety. You know, people oftentimes overheat on MDMA because they're dancing nonstop in a poorly ventilated hot room. They're not stopping for breaks. They're not drinking enough water. And that's how we see cases of hyperthermia linked to MDMA. So there could just be more sensible regulation in terms of education and knowing that what you're getting is what you think you're getting. 
Okay, last question really quick, because we only have 30 seconds. You, oh, okay. You have, um, you give us some ways that we might harness MDMA so that we could all live together in peace. So I take this very seriously. And and some people say that you might want to make leaders take it and then they would change policy. And some people say that there should be psychedelic centers around the world so that like-minded people can meet and take MD, MDMA and then proliferate out around the world and change others. What's your best idea on how to use it in the world to change the world? <laughs> well, okay. First of all, MDMA is not going to change the world, but I do think that you know the world is changed by individual people and people's decisions. So if People can have their trauma healed if people can feel more connected towards others and more loving toward themselves and to the world at large. That can nudge us into a hopefully better place. And that doesn't mean everyone needs to take MDMA. If you talk to people who have healed from it, like their families say there's wonderful results without having to take it themselves. So, you know, I think hopefully it can push us into a better place, but it can definitely make some lives better. And that unto itself is worthy. Thank you so much for talking to us today. My guest today has been award-winning science journalist Rachel Neuer. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. I Feel Love has just been published by Bloomsbury. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on MDMA, one of the world's most promising and controversial drugs. One interview at a time. Bye for now. 